I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster and we're starting to wrap up the international season, aka the season that truly never ends and has gone on several months longer than I had thought it would, but like I'm having a good time. We're all having a good time. And there's still so many stories that I have yet to share with you. So today we are talking about Dowager Empress Sushi, who is a figure from Chinese history. I got, this is recommended ages ago by Tits Brigade member Abigail, a friend of the podcast, Lana Wood Johnson also suggested this would be a good story to look at. And I'm really excited to, to share this story with you. Like, this is like heads up. This is going to be more than part one. There is a lot to talk about, but like, get your bingo cards out. We're going to be marking off a lot of squares. This story really hits on a lot of the things that come up time and time again on vulgar history. So the main resources I use for this was there's a biography that's really, really good. Recent-ish called Empress Dowager Sushi, The Concubine Who Launched Modern China by Zhang Chang. I also looked at Wikipedia, got information from Women in World History, a biographical encyclopedia. And before we dive into this episode, I just want to say if you're interested, we talked before about um, Queen Min from the Chosan Empire. If you want to learn more about Asian history from Asian people, some podcasts I recommend are Asian American History 101, which is a really fun podcast hosted by a father and daughter team. They do deep dives in history and they also interview people. 
There's also a podcast called With Chinese Characteristics. Also really good, really interesting. And there's also a podcast called Asian Enough, which is mostly interviews with people, like contemporary Asian people. Anyway, there's lots to learn. And today I'm just, even though this is going to be like, again, more than a one episode story. There's so much more to talk about all this stuff. And I encourage you to go learn about it from other people. So we're getting into it. What what are we talking about? What era is this? So first we're going to get into like the era we're getting into is similar to the era we've been talking about in a lot of episodes lately, which is the mid to late 19th century. But to explain kind of what was China up to, we're going to dive back slightly. So This is the Qing Dynasty, which is spelled Q-I-N-G. And this was a dynasty founded by the non-Chinese Manchu minority. So that's like, well, I'll explain. So Manchu people constituted only 1% or 2% of the population of China. And in this era, when I'm saying China, the borders aren't exactly what modern day China is, but similar and in that same region. In order to consolidate Manchu minority power, uh, after they took over the the conquerors, the Manchu represented themselves as defenders of Chinese culture and adopted a banner system of hereditary military establishment that favored themselves. So the Manchus were a people who originally lived in Manchuria. So the way that they took over was in 1644. So the previous dynasty was the Ming dynasty. They were overthrown by a peasant rebellion. And that was not the Manchus, but the Manchus saw this happen and saw that was an opportunity and they took over following this peasant rebellion. So the name of their dynasty, the Qing dynasty, means great purity. They took over Beijing as their capital and under them, the empire became three times the size of the previous Ming empire. So at its height, Qing dynasty, China was 13 million square kilometers compared to modern China, which is 9.6 million. So modern China is a bit smaller from the height of Qing dynasty. So the Manchus were a minority. Again, the indigenous Chinese people were the Han. And so the Han actually outnumbered the Manchus something like 100 to 1. And so to like to stay in charge, the Manchus set up very strict rules that had to be followed and this is where that hairstyle comes from that you see sometimes in oldie times movies where there are Chinese characters. So the Manchu enforced that haircut where men had like a long ponytail, but they had to like shave the outer part of their hair. And if the Han men, or I guess if Manchu men, if any man didn't do that, they would be beheaded. Like Manchu were just like very strict rules for everything. And that is similar to um, what we talked about in Korea in the same time, China was also guided by the Confucian philosophy. So we talked about that in the Queen Min episode a bit. So again, what that means on a practical day-to-day level was there were very, very strict social hierarchies. Everybody had a place and there's kind of striations of society. A lot of things were really binary, like you either this or this. And in the binary, one thing was often kind of better than the other thing. So in this sense, the, what was better was the Manchu were treated better. So they were the only ones to acquire top jobs, asterisks. I'll talk about that in a bit. So the Manchu regarded themselves as Chinese and referred to their empire as the Chinese Empire or China, as well as the Qing. 
So the whole apparatus was ruled over by an emperor who had basically supreme power. Like there wasn't also a prime minister or whatever. It wasn't a ceremonial role. It was like a very active political role. And they had advisors who were the grand council. And the seat of the throne was in my favorite named place, the Forbidden City, which was at the time the largest imperial palace complex in the world. So the person we're talking about, this is like, how often has this come up this season? What name do we call them? So I was interrogating this in myself. And to me, names are really important. I like to know people's names. I like to know what name they went by, what name they called themselves. Like that is important to me. It's a way to really hone in on, to me, like the humanity of the person, really seeing the person as a person. Like on this podcast, I'm sure you've noticed, I tend to call people by their first names and not by their titles or by their last names. That is my taste, but also I'm somebody who grew up in Canada in a culture where names do have an importance. But like with the Queen Min episode, like Harem Sultan, like uh, Saida al Hura, like we don't actually know the name that Sushi was given at birth. And that's because this was a culture where knowing the names of women was not that important. So Sushi later on, and that's a name by what she's best known. So I'm going to call her that throughout, even though that was not a name that she had in the first place. We don't actually know what her name was before then. But we do know that it was under the name Sushi that she did a lot of really impressive things that we'll get into probably in part two. This is just very much just like setting the scene this week. So Sushi was born the 10th day of the 10th lunar month in 1835, a.k.a. November 29th. So in terms of people we've talked about on this podcast, that's about 10 years after Lola Montez was born in Ireland, uh, two years before Empress Sisi was born in Bavaria. So living at the same time as other people we've talked about on this podcast. So, so she was from one of the oldest and most illustrious Manchu families. So again, the Manchu had been in charge of things for about 200 years by then. So her family had been government employees for generations and they were well off. So she was raised comfortably. And because she was uh, from a Manchu family, like other Manchu families, she and her sister, I think she had one sister, like all Manchu girls and women, they did not have to do the foot binding. So foot binding is a thing I, I forget when I learned about it, but it's one of those historical things that just really stuck with me. So this was a traditional Han practice, so like the indigenous people of China did this, where as a young girl, um, their feet were effectively crushed and bound, like wrapped up so they wouldn't grow. And so girls and women had these really tiny, like just broken, just like really tiny little feet. If you ever get to uh, Toronto in Canada, there's my one of my favorite museums. I mean, I've not been to museums much outside of Canada. But one of my favorite Canadian museums is the Bata Shoe Museum in Toronto, where they have all kinds of historical shoes, which is really interesting to see and to imagine what people are like. But they do have shoes um, on display there from the period where uh, the Han women and girls in China did foot bindings. And you see how small they are. And it's just like pretty horrifying and awful. Sushi was not culturally expected to do that. So, I mean... Luckily for her, I guess. So because of the Confucian society situation, um, there was a very strict gender binary. Men and women were kept apart. And I think, I don't know how atypical this is for her, 
but it, it was pretty unusual based on when she starts hanging around other Manchu young girls. And so she was as educated as she was. So she learned to read and write a little. Um, in Chinese, she learned to draw, to play chess, to embroider, and to make dresses. Later in her life, people mentioned how skilled she actually was at sewing and making dresses, like cutting patterns and things. So her knowledge of written Chinese was basic. That comes up later, so I just wanted to mention it here. So it's not that she wasn't skilled and intelligent and curious and wanted to learn. It's just that at this time, written texts were completely divorced from the spoken form of the Chinese language. So you couldn't write down what you spoke or thought. Like it was very complicated to learn how to read and write in Chinese. Like it took something like a decade of really intensive studying. Um, and you had to do that. You had to study these Confucian books, which like this is the 1800s. Like books weren't as common then as they are now. So it's hard to get your hands, especially these rare Confucian texts. So something at this time, less than 1% of the population was able to read or write the bare minimum. So she was not in that 1%. Like she could read and write a bit. So as a child, she was a young girl when the first opium war broke out. And I just want to give a heads up to people who know a lot about Chinese history. Like this is a very sushi-based discussion. We're really looking at like who is, what was she dealing with specifically as a person? I don't, and there's so much to talk about. I can't get into all the details of all the wars that were happening. But effectively... The Opium War was started by Britain in reaction to Beijing clamping down on the illegal opium trade conducted by British merchants. And this was something like, this is not in my notes, this is just me remembering what Lana told me, but it was something like, Britain really liked tea. Remember we talked about in the Hortense Mancini episode how tea made its way to Britain through, I think it was Catherine of Braganza, who's the Portuguese princess, and tea made its way to Portugal because... Portugal had invaded India. So like tea was a thing in like India, China, like that region of the world. And then it got to Britain and they're like, oh my God, I love this. Tea is great. And so they wanted tea from China, but China was like, okay, but like, there's nothing we want from you. Like we're good. So there was nothing that China needed. And that was why Britain started getting people in China addicted to opium so that they would need opium from them. And that's the opium war. So China was defeated in this, the first opium war, and that sent them into sort of a financial or economic crisis. So the emperor at that time enforced uh, strict budgetary measures on everyone. So that included canceling, you know, celebrations, you know, like New Year's parties and things, and demanded that people repay funds that the emperor claimed their ancestors had owed. So given that Sushi's family had been government employees for like 200 years, the emperor claimed that they owed some money. Maybe they did. I'm not sure. So her grandfather was put in jail and, until they paid this like huge fee. So age 11, Sushi jumped in to help out her family. So she took, she was good at sewing. And may, or this is maybe where she became really good at sewing. She took in sewing jobs to earn extra money for her family. And she was really astute. And really um, clever and thoughtful, her father consulted with her, like about how ways that they could raise more money to pay off this ancestral debt, because he saw that she was like, really, she got it. She was really smart and had good instincts for this sort of thing. She proposed various helpful suggestions. And with her help, they raised 60% of the required debt or some, which was enough to get their grandfather out of debtor's prison. Her father was so impressed with her, like, and how she really stepped up in the situation. He apparently said something like, this daughter of mine is really more like a son, 
which is like the Artemisia of Caria again, where it's just like, oh my God, like the women are as good as men. Like that's, you know what, if that's the ultimate compliment you have to give, that speaks of what society is like, but it speaks to what Sushi was like, because this wasn't a society where girls and women were thought to be as good as sons. So the fact that her father said that, you know, it's not my favorite compliment I've ever heard, but it speaks well of her. And also it speaks of how her father saw, like, smartly saw how much of an asset she was and how intelligent she was. So, like, out of this, like, he trusted her to talk about business matters in a way that other girls and women weren't turned to for advice at this time because he was open-minded enough to realize that she was really helpful. Like, he had a son, at least one son, but he saw that, like, so she was, like, the brains of this operation. So when she was around 15 years old, the emperor died and was succeeded by his son, Jean Feng, who was around her age. And so he had an empress, but his, or a wife, Jean Feng had a wife, but she died just before he became the emperor. So he needed a new wife. And so Chinese emperors were permitted to have one empress and as many concubines as they wanted. So... Like, again, in a Queen Min situation and a harem sultan situation, like, we're going to have, like, a harem of concubines going on here. And how he chose a new empress and his concubines was in a really sort of, like, really, like, a Cinderella situation, crossed with the bachelor, crossed with, like, an American idol, a nation, crossed with that book, The Selection by Kira Cass, if you've read those. So a nationwide selection was held. So all the eligible Manchu girls were presented to the emperor, like in person, like they came and like stood in front of him. And he was like, okay, who's this? So he could decide who he liked, who he liked the looks of. So again, Jean Feng, the emperor was about four years older than Sushi. So she was like 15, 16. He's like 19, 20. Jean Feng had been in poor health all of his life. He had a limp a permanent limp that after he had an accident falling off a horse. So people referred to the emperor as the dragon, like that was just whoever the emperor was, but they called him the limping dragon because he had this limp and he was just kind of like not in great health. So the selection wasn't, it wasn't a beauty pageant. Like with, with um, Harem Sultan also, it's not just like, oh, who is the prettiest person? No, it's like you wanted personal characteristics that would be good um, for an empress. So they were looking for somebody with character. So dignity, courteousness, graciousness, gentleness, and modesty. Looks were secondary, though they had to be pleasing. And in terms of the empress, that was gonna, their main job as empress was going to be managing the household, managing the concubines. So you wanted somebody with good um, managerial skills, some with good people skills. You didn't want it to devolve into a place like on The Bachelor, where the women are all fighting with each other and they're all catty. Like you want somebody who just could bring them together and make it work harmoniously. So there was hundreds of candidates. Um, one of them was, of course, Sushi. And one of them was also a girl two years younger than her, whose name was Zen of the Neohuru clan. And she's going to become important later. And I don't know if they met each other at this point, if they became friends at this point, but like, she's important. So both girls were selected, so he didn't choose an empress yet. He kind of chose everybody as concubines. And then from them, he was going to later choose which one would be the empress. So there were eight ranks of concubines. Like, you know, rank one is like the best one, and then rank eight is like the lowest one. So that just depends on how many, um, I don't know, how many servants you get, how many. The Manchu women, they had 
um, milk and dairy products. So it's like, how many cows do you have access to? So Jeanne was put in the fifth rank and so she was in the sixth rank. So not like super high up. And so I guess all the concubines were there and they, the emperor or his like people, not him, because um, men can go there, but like people report back to him what was going on and who was like what. And after four months, Jeanne was selected to be his wife, the empress. And so later on, like, like with Sushi, so Jeanne is renamed Sa'anne, and we're just going to start calling her that now, just for a continuity of names, because there's a lot of names we're going to be going through. But please know that Sa'anne is super important. And she was chosen as empress because, frankly, she was the coolest and best one there. Sushi, the smartest. Sa'anne, the coolest. So she was allegedly not super glamorous. She was plain. Um, and she had some sort of, I don't know if it's her posture or something about her physique made people nickname her. So the empress, like the same way the emperor is like the dragon, the empress is the phoenix. And so he's the limping dragon and people called her the fragile phoenix. So maybe she, you know, she didn't look super, I don't know, strong or whatever. But whatever, who cares? She was miscongeniality of the situation. She got along well with all of the other concubines and she was able to manage them and the servants. And again, like her whole role was to manage people. And that is like me as a person who has had jobs in the past where I supervise people. Like that's so challenging. Not everybody is good at that. So the fact that she was speaks very highly of her and like she was her whole life, like they chose well um, under her. The harem was free of backstabbing and rivalries. So like, if you can imagine somebody coming into like, literally like the bachelor, like the way that the women in that, well, I mean, the producers there are doing the opposite of what Sian was doing. They're stoking the rivalries and stuff. But just imagining all these women, they just got along fine. Like they got along fine the, her whole tenure. Like she has got this superpower. And she and Sushi were friends within the harem. Um, but Sushi was struggling. Because, you know, since she was 11, she had been used to offering helpful advice and being listened to by her father. She had these skills. Her skills were like, I'm going to say scheminess. Not in like, a, <laughs> it will be schemy later. But just like she came up with a plan. She was smart. She could look at a problem and solve it. And she used to people respecting her for that. But the emperor and this whole imperial harem was not looking for girls who did that. So there was various political upheavals, which I won't get into, but there was some real dramatic stuff happening in China and those other podcasts I mentioned, I'm sure. We'll talk about that stuff. There's like, there's a cult being run by a guy who claims to be Jesus's younger brother, tried to take over the country. Things are happening. But again, we're just looking at Sushi and what she was doing is she like, like with Harem, like she's. She's in this imperial palace with the other concubines. She can't go anywhere. She's like, the political stuff is happening, but like, that's not what her life is revolving around. So um, she tried to advise Jean Fang about how, like, maybe how he could act in these political situations. And this annoyed him because consorts weren't supposed to have anything to do with politics, let alone talk to him. Like their job was to, when they were chosen by him, like to go to like have sex with him, to maybe have children, but like they weren't supposed to like talk about stuff. So he complained to his wife, Sa'anne, about Sushi and was like, you know, Sushi, like she get her back in line. Like you're the manager of her. Like, could you please tell her to stop giving me advice? And in fact, 
like for speaking out of turn, like, so she could have faced deadly punishment for having done this. Like she could have been executed for doing this, but she and Sa'an were friends. Sa'an like saw everybody's potential and what they were good at. And she didn't want to like, she's just such a good manager. I feel like I just really respect the way that she was able to, to help out here. She had her girls back. Like, Zhang Feng, the emperor, was concerned enough about Sushi and how smart she, like, clearly was. He was worried that she would meddle in politics after he died. And so he wrote, like, an official document saying that after he died, Sa'an should have Sushi put to death. Later on, he is going to die, at which point Sa'an shows this paper to Sushi and they burn it because she's got her girls back. And so because of this, Sa'an saved Sushi, like she um, saved her from being executed, but also kind of like smooth things over with the emperor. And because of this, Sushi was always loyal to Sa'an. They were like devoted besties. So like later, just because of what Sushi gets up to, there's lots of people writing lots of stuff about her, making up stories or just exaggerating things she did, trying to make her sound like this kind of cruel person who's mean to people all the time, but even her worst enemies never even suggested that she was anything less than devoted to Sa'an. They were best friends. Even though Sa'an was a bit younger, she referred to um, Sushi as younger sister, like that was her nickname for her, um, because it just shows their closeness. They were like ultra best friends. And who knows, maybe Sa'an was able to put in a good word for her girl because so she got promoted from level six concubine to level five and five years after joining the imperial harem sushi gave birth to the emperor's son which was his first son and her whole life changed the son was named zaishun and so she then got elevated again so now she was like the number two consort like the only person ahead of her was saan and in fact now that she had a bit more power she had more Influence, but also she was able to ask for a favor because, like, being the woman who, or girl, the teen mom who gave birth to the emperor's son, gave her some political sway at this point. So she uh, convinced the emperor. So remember, she had a sister. So the emperor agreed that Sushi's younger sister could marry one of the emperor's younger half brothers, Prince Chun. He becomes important later on. So throw that info away. Prince Chun married to Sushi's sister. So. Yeah, so because of this whole like imperial harem situation, Sushi had like given birth to Zaishun, the little baby emperor's son. But because Sa'an was the, the wife of the emperor, she was officially the mother of the baby. So what this meant in practice was basically Zaishun had two cool moms who were also best friends. And the same year that he was born, the second opium war broke out. So this time it was China versus England and France. The war went on for years and years. And when the baby was four, uh, French forces occupied Beijing and they burned the old summer palace, which was, I don't think it was part of the Forbidden City. It was like a bit further away, but it was like a beautiful place. So she had visited there at least once and she had been so impressed with how beautiful it was. So when it burned, like later on when she gets the ability to, she really, um, it was important to her to rebuild it. Anyway. So all this was happening, and so Sushi, Sa'an, baby Zaichun, and the emperor all fled the city to go hide out somewhere where it was safer. And so, important introduction of another character in the story who's going to become very important. 
while they were all hiding outside of Beijing, like which had been occupied by the French, the emperor's other younger half-brother, Prince Gong, so Prince Chen was his younger half-brother who married Sushi's sister. Prince Gong is a different guy. Prince Gong, so when the emperor dies, this is going to become important later on. So much foreshadowing. So the way, it's not just like the oldest son of the emperor becomes the new emperor. It's the emperor gets to choose which of his sons he's going to choose. And he like writes down the name with a special pen and puts it on a piece of paper and a special box and this whole thing. And so Zaishun had been chosen to be the new emperor by his father. One of the reasons why his half-brother, Prince Gong, was not chosen was because Gong was, frankly, I'm going to say too cool. So he did not have as much of an intense hatred of Westerners as Zaijun and some other people did. And their dad really wanted the new emperor to be somebody who was very anti-Westernization. Gong was also good at diplomacy. Um, he was sometimes willing to compromise with um, other people. So anyway, for those reasons, he was not chosen to be the next emperor. And I don't think he ever wanted to be. He wasn't mad about it. He liked I don't know. I like in the story how like people are just being put in a role that like suits their skill set. So Prince Gong was like kind of working as a diplomat on behalf of his brother. He was also, just so you know, very hot. Um, he has a really smoldering sort of look. And I will share a picture of him on Instagram for sure. Instagram, vulgar history pot. But anyway, so because of these qualities... This is why Zaishin kind of left him there in Beijing and he was able to sort things out with the French who had like just invaded Beijing, but he was so hot and so good with diplomacy. The French were like, okay, we'll settle this score. Anyway, so yeah, just put that in your pocket that the emperor has this younger brother who is both hot, but also like politically astute and kind of cool. So anyway, so like all this stuff had happened. The summer palace was burned, Beijing was invaded and Emperor Zaishin was had been sick his whole life and this just like kind of exacerbated everything by adding on some depression he turned to alcohol and drugs in his depression and maybe like i don't know pain or whatever he's going through so he's becoming not especially effective as emperor and so she was like oh how about a little bit so as he was just kind of like not doing great Healthwise, so she stepped up to help with governing related business because, unlike many of the other Manchu women in the imperial household, she knew how to read and write in Chinese. Like, even though it wasn't a perfect capability, it was more than a lot of other people had. So, on various occasions, Zhang Feng had so she read palace memorials for him and leave instructions on the memorials according to his will. As a result of this, she became more or better informed about state affairs and the art of governing from her husband and he was like dying and he knew he was dying so he summoned eight of his most prestigious ministers and named them the eight regent ministers and said that their job was going to be to direct and support the future emperor baby Zaishun. and then um Zhang Feng died from what wikipedia calls a short life of overindulgence so i would say just a lot of illnesses all got together alcohol and drugs didn't help and he died. And so Sushi was like, mm, these eight guys, I don't think they're the best choice to take over. And in fact, Sushi was like, I am going to take over me and my bestie, Sa'an. And they did. And here's how they did that. So I do want to emphasize that the guys, eight regents, they're very much, they remind me of, there's been so many groups of men who are so bad at being in charge of stuff. 
There was the Demeras with Ronnie Ditta. There was like every man who was around Fred again ever. The guys who were just like, mm, and Jenga, are we sure we want her in charge? Just like, they're, they're the same like these, just these useless guys, but also whatever. Today, for all of human history, there's been groups of useless guys who are bad at leading, who are put in charge of stuff. And Sushi and Sa'an really saw that, like, okay, like, this now is not the time for these useless guys to be in charge of specifically, like, China, because there's all these, like, we've been through two opium wars. There was this whole thing I didn't really talk about with the, like, Christian cult who tried to take over the country. Like, they're just like, no, like, this is our baby son, because they're best friends, who are both moms of the baby son. Yes, Hepburn, hello. Um, they just wanted, they were loyal to their country. They wanted to make a good country for their son to be the new emperor, and they knew that these guys were not going to do that. The only people who could do that was them. So I also enjoy them as a duo. I've been trying and trying to think of a better example than this, but my own pop cultural understanding can only draw a comparison to the extraordinarily problematic book and movie, Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara, and Melanie. I don't know if you know the story, and if you don't, good. It's like a really racist story. But um, the characters, uh, so Scarlett is like this badass bitch, very tits out vibes. And she's full of ideas, and she's got a lot of um, character and personality, but not a lot of soft skills. She's not good in groups of people because she's so stubborn and herself. Um, Melanie is like all soft skills. So at first you're like, so at first Scarlett like hates Melanie. Well, because Melanie likes the guy who Scarlett likes. Anyway, but there's a scene where Melanie really proves herself that she's actually so strong, but it's just in a quiet way. And the two of them is like a double act. They become good friends. And that's how I see Sushi and Sa'an, where they have such a different energy. Like Sushi is just like, she's got a Jane Grey almost level of just like, I am so much smarter than everybody. And that makes people mad. But Sa'an is the one who's like, oh, this is nice. Everything's okay. And she can like smooth things over. So they're like the ideal partnership. The best, best friends. Like I love them. I love their friendship. And I love that they're taking their friendship to the next level in the sense of a coup. So, and Sushi had this all figured out. And the thing about the eight guys who were in charge is they had, well, Sushi knew all of their weaknesses because she's just like smart and can figure that out. But a main weakness of theirs was that they underestimate her. <laughs> and people learn to not do that. But at this point, people don't know about that yet. So, so one of the things that they, they do, and it's sort of similar to the thing in the Jane Grey story where like she actively put a crown on her head and that was treason because like the crown has all the significance. Or in the Queen Min story where her arch nemesis Daewangun took this special seal and because he had the special seal, it meant his son could be the emperor because the seal had all this power to it in a similar sort of like an object has importance way. So Zhan Feng, the emperor who had just died, well, the thing that emperors had to write their own will in their own hand, because remember, they have to write down, here's who my heir is going to be. And they were on the special paper and put it in the special box, but he was too sick when he was dying to do that. So one of the eight men wrote it for him, but they're like, we just did this because he couldn't. Like, this is very much, it is in his own hand in the sense of he told us what to write. This is a loophole. Just bear that in mind. So yeah, um, anyway, these guys were the worst. And they had made some bad calls during the opium war, during the whole thing with the like cult trying to take over. So she knew they were bad and she knew that things were getting really intense in China because this was the same time period-ish as when we were talking about with Queen Min, where it's just like, 
Russia, the US, like all these countries are just like really trying to stake a claim in this part of the world. She knew it was just going to be a real struggle and there had to be a strong leadership, e.g. herself. So she had no political power because she was a woman. Like even as the mother of the new emperor, she didn't get a title because technically she, even though she gave birth, she was not like Sa'an was officially the mother, right? So Sa'an got the title of Dowager Empress. And unless she could get that title also, she was officially like just a concubine, like concubine number two. So she got to researching. I love a research montage. They went through all the old books and documents and they found like 200 years ago, a similar thing had happened where like the new emperor was the son of a concubine, but the mother is still around, like the empress is still around too. And in that instance, both women got to be called dowager empress. So, you know, in that sort of how lawyers do, they're like, well, there was this precedent that was already set. So Anne brought this to the council and she's like, mm, can Sushi be dowager empress also, please? We're totally not trying to do a coup. And they were like, sure, okay. And it was at this point that they took on their names that I've been calling them this whole time, Sa'an and Sushi. And that was so they could be distinguished, like told apart from each other because they were both the Dowager Empress. Um, Sa'an means kindly and serene, and Sushi means kindly and joyous. And I do want to mention, there are some photos of Sushi from later in her life, and she always looks very serious in all of the photos. There's one photo in the book um, that, I think it was in the book, the biography read by Jung Chang, that shows her smiling. And apparently she was very, like, she liked to have a good time. She was smiling and laughing, but she just wanted to look very serious in photos. So even though you're like, really? Like her name means kindly and joyous. It's like, yeah, people can be multiple things. You can be kindly and joyous and you can also be a badass person doing a coup. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just 
going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. And we're back. So also bear in mind, like at this point, so she was like 25. So Anne, 24. They're like young women and they were going to attempt a coup, which if unsuccessful, meant that they would be not only put to death, but they would be put to death in this thing that was done in the Qing Dynasty called Death by a Thousand Cuts, where a person is just like, um, they end up sort of looking like they have fish scales because there's so many cuts all over their body and they slowly die and it's awful. But they knew that they had to do this because they wanted to save the kingdom for their son and because they didn't want to live the rest of their lives as imperial widows just trapped in the harem, like not having any power or control. So they plotted together and I love this detail. So there was like a water tank. I'm not sure if it's like a fountain or something. So they pretended to just be like admiring their own reflections or just like doing girl talk and... All the men didn't know to be worried about this. And they were like, oh, look at them. They're just like looking at the reflections. Those like harmless women totally not planning a coup. But I guess the men wouldn't see them because men and women were separate. Anyway, this was the plan. Like Sushi was the brains of the operation. Um, So Anne was the one who could like talk to people. Like they both had the roles, but Sushi was, of course, planning this. So another part of her plan was so their new emperor was their joint six-year-old son who couldn't write yet because he was six and as i explained it takes like 10 years for an adult to learn how to write chinese language the emperor was supposed to write all the decrees in their own hand but he was a baby emperor and he couldn't write so sushi was like well the previous emperor my husband jean fang had given a special seal to me and went to Sa'an and They were supposed to be stamps that the two of them could use to put on decrees to make them official. Now, we don't know what's true or what's not, but like, just bear in mind that a lot of people gave stamps as gifts, as just like cute artistic things. The emperor probably had given, among other things, like a seal to Sushi and to Sa'an, but he had never meant for them to be in charge. But Sushi was like, well, we both have these royal seals. Like, that is proof that our dead husband wanted us to be the ones with magic seals. And I guess that means that we should have some role as regents. And the men were like, okay, because they like, again, just like could not begin to imagine that these women were doing anything sneaky. So this is all phase one. Phase two involves hot Prince Gong. So he was the hot one who's good at diplomacy and stuff, not the one married to Sushi's sister. So he was held in high esteem as the foremost nobleman in the land. Lots of people thought he should have been made regent, but he was like, I'm cool. Don't worry about it because he's also cool. So she liked his way. So remember his thing was he did not hate the Western nations as much as some other people did. And so she saw that one of the like failures of the eight guys was they were never willing to compromise with like Western nations. And she was just like, I think we're going to have to do that. So and she's like, mm, gong, he's on that page. Like, let's get him on our team. So, um, yeah, and also he's just like a really upfront, ethical, trustworthy guy. And she's like, we need someone like that on our team for the coup because nobody will expect it from him. But also if he's on their side, they'll all like 
be okay with it if there's like a powerful man who supports them. This is all happening really quickly. So bear in mind, Sushi, Sa'an, their baby emperor son, they're all still out of town because France had invaded Beijing, but that had all been sorted out. Hot Prince Gong was still in Beijing. And so they had to be like, how can we communicate to him? Especially given the fact that their dead husband had left a decree saying like, Prince Gong has to stay in Beijing. Please don't let him come here. So they're like, "Mm, how can we have him come here? So she, the women, they convinced the regents to allow Gong to come for a visit, even though the emperor had said, please don't do this because they were persuasive. And so Gong showed up. And while he was there, Sushi and Sa'an summoned him to come and talk to them. And they had to like use a eunuch to send the message because like they couldn't talk to him directly to invite him. We're going to talk next time more about the role of eunuchs in this situation. But please know that those are the male servants who are around at this time. And Sushi was friends with lots of them. So they were on her side, or at least this guy was. So anyway, he was summoned. And he came to talk to them. And then they talked for like two hours. I think the two women were behind a screen. A lot of stuff happens in the story where they're behind a screen because like men and women can talk to each other or like women couldn't be in charge of stuff. But anyway, after two hours, so they didn't like come right out of the gate, be like, we're doing a coup, join us. But they were like, it would be nice if like the two of us could have a bit more responsibility in decision making, if you could like suggest that. Thanks. And he was like, okay. So. Next, phase three. So she schemed a way to make the regions look so awful that Hot Prince Gong would have no choice but to turn against them. And so, okay, so there's a rule where, like, you can't shout and behave disrespectfully in front of the emperor. So they tricked Sushi and Sa'an, tricked them into doing that. So she summoned the regions into a room with them. They were there with the baby emperor. I'm calling him the baby emperor, but he's like six, whatever. Anyway, and then she got into an argument with him. The men started yelling. It all got really heightened and emotional. And the baby emperor was so distressed by the yelling that he cried and wet his pants. So she had really set up the regents to just act disrespectfully in front of the baby emperor and to frighten him. So she was like, all right. Like after they yelled, she's like, okay, we'll go. Don't worry about it. But like they had this evidence now. And there's like other people in the room too who saw it. She wrote to her brother-in-law. So the other prince, Prince Chut, the one who married her sister, asking him to dismiss the regents for this offensive behavior. And he was like, oh my God, like they like scared the emperor, made him pee his pants. Like, of course I'll fire them. So he wrote a letter. Oh, I love this detail. I love this detail. So he wrote a letter and then he had it sent to Sa'an, who sewed the letter inside of her robe so nobody could see it. Yes, like chef's kiss. So she had this letter, but she was just waiting for the right time to like deploy it. Until then, it was hidden inside of Sa'an's robe, sewn inside. I love when sewing skills like help with your coup planning. So she had this letter. And so then so she went to Gong again to be like, the regions suck. Prince Chun supports maybe dismissing them. And Gong was like, all right, I'm in. Again, everybody is now like not in Beijing. Everybody is out of town. Well, Gong had returned to Beijing, but everybody else was out of town. And so Sushi made a plan where she was going to travel a different, faster route to get to Beijing. So she got there before the eight regents did. So when she got there, she presented Gong with the letter from inside the robe. The letter was stamped with the two royal stamps, um, Sushi's stamp and Sa'an's stamp. 
And Gong was like, well, this couldn't be more official. I am on board with your coup. So then, in a public speech, so she and Sa'an tearfully revealed how the agents had bullied the child emperor and everyone was like, oh my God, that's terrible. I mean, Asterix, please know that the eight guys sucked. It wasn't like they're trying to overthrow eight guys who everybody was fond of. Like everyone knew they were awful. Anyway, so they gave this speech in Beijing and then the regents arrived. Remember, they had gone like a longer route and everyone was like, arrest them. And the regents were like, you can't arrest us. We're the ones who write the rules to say who arrests who. But then Prince Gong put up the letter from the rope and he was like, "Mm, but this one has the two magic seals on it. So fuck you, I guess. And the regents were arrested. And because especially this one guy, I think his name is Sushin, was just like, especially shitty. People hated them. And so he was executed, Sushin, because he had just been, he was just like a nasty guy. He was just mean to everybody. And they're like, mm, execute him. Two more, like they're all arrested. The other two of the others were put in a room by themselves. And then they were given a, um, like a silk scarf was like passed along to them. And that was sort of like code for being like, use this to kill yourself, to avoid execution. And so they did. Um, And then the others were all dismissed and I guess sent into exile or whatever. So thus, two months after the emperor's death, 25-year-old Sushi, 24-year-old Sa'an had completed their coup with only three people dying. Um, It was extremely impressive. The British envoy in Beijing wrote at the time, quote, it is certainly singular that men long in power should not have fallen without a shot of resistance and without a voice or hand raised in their defense. And this is because the eight guys just really sucked. And because Sushi and Sa'an had gotten the allies that they needed on their side, like Chun was on their side, Hot Prince Gong was on their side, like they had this, they had the seals, like their son was the emperor. Like they had done this so beautifully and so almost entirely bloodlessly. And remember, they, this could have not gone well. They could have themselves have been executed, but instead they executed this plan perfectly. Yeah, so word got out that Sushi had been the mastermind behind this whole scheme and she, lots of people admired her and thought that was so cool. Like her dad, they're just like, oh wait, she's like really smart and good at stuff. Hmm. The famed military chief Zheng Guofan wrote in his diary, I am bowled over by the Empress Dowager's wise, decisive action which even great monarchs in the past were not able to achieve. I'm much stirred by admiration and awe. Hot Prince Gong was also really impressed by her. Um, He called for her to take charge of the country, which was unprecedented in the Qing dynasty, in the sense of like having a woman be in charge as the regent for a baby king. So this had happened a few times in previous dynasties where a dowager empress ruled for the young sons, but never in the Qing dynasty. So that was not in the last like 200-ish years. And so she, like, again, like, she just, like, I like that she doesn't hold things against people. Like, when people, or she's never jealous of other people or shies away from, like, giving them credit. Like, she loved and respected Sa'an. They were never rivals ever. And then Prince Gong helped out, and she was, like, so grateful. She gave him the title of Grand Advisor. So, on the ninth day of the 10th moon, 1861, the eve of her 26th birthday, it was proclaimed to the whole empire that from now on, Sushi and Sa'an were in charge. Their son, Zaishin, was given the name Emperor Tongzi, which means order and prosperity. But, so there's a whole coronation situation that went on, and everyone was saying how she's so great, everyone knew what she did, but Sushi was not even permitted to attend her son's coronation because it was in the part of the Forbidden City where women couldn't go. And... 
like to be continued, basically. This is where I'm going to leave us for part one. Next week in part two, we're going to learn about what is Sushi like when she is in control. I mean, spoiler alert, legendary. So next week, we will get to talking about what happens when Sushi is in charge. And trust me, there's a lot because everything I just told you is like the first two chapters of like a 500 page biography that I read. Also, some really strong contenders for the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. We'll see how that goes next week. And also, eventually we'll get to scoring. So I just want to let you know as well, because you're listening to this at the time of year. Well, I don't know when you're listening to this, but if you're listening to it live, when it first came out, um, I have a couple of things to let you know about re-gift giving. So if you want to get an audio recording of me to give to somebody as a gift, uh, use a contact form at vulgarhistory.com to get in touch with me about that. If you want to have like a cute little audio message of me saying tits the season or whatever, we can talk. You can also message me on Instagram where I'm at vulgarhistorypod, but also that's where I'm going to post important pictures because after Artemisia of Caria, a person who lived so long ago, there's not really any images of them. There's a lot of images of Sushi and all the people from the story, including Hot Prince Gong. So I'm going to post all that stuff at Vulgar History Pod. And I'm also at TikTok at Vulgar History, where I'm still figuring things out. But I think a nice time so far. And the people on TikTok are so nice. And I like so far, I just am saying like little short history things there with pictures. Not of me so far. Anyway, TikTok of Vulgar History. And in terms of Christmas and other gift-giving occasions that are coming up, the merch store is at vulgarhistory.store, where you can always use promo code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. There's some seasonal merch that I've added there as well. Um, these are the same things we had there last gift-giving in December. So there's TITS the season, TITS out for the holidays. These are mugs and they kind of look like an oldie time embroidered sampler but that is what they say. And then also a cute t-shirt with a design that says Candelicious, which is for Hanukkah. Anyway, if you're going to buy some stuff, I recommend ordering as soon as possible to ensure your stuff arrives by Christmas or whatever gift giving occasion you're celebrating. And then also if I recommend books all the time on this podcast, and you can always find those at bookshop.org slash shop slash vulgar history. That link is in the show notes, but also for this time of year, I've put up a gift guide which is basically just um, books I've mentioned on the show, but other books that I think might be good gifts if you like giving books as gifts. And when you buy things through my bookshop.org link, a little bit of money goes to support me and the show. So yeah, bookshop.org slash shop slash vulgar history, but the link will be in the show notes as well. And I guess that's everything. There's going to be an episode next week. There'll be an episode the week after that. We'll see how things go, but the season is going to end by the end of calendar year 2022. So just, we can all prepare ourselves. Anyway, until then, keep your pants on and your tits out, and I'll talk to you all next time. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I 
wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.